The reading, of course, comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peter is always observing two groups of people. Those who are in the fellowship, the brothers and the sisters, the family, the body of Christ, the church, the called, the elect, the redeemed, the household of faith. These are the ones that, that Peter is ministering to and training them in righteousness that they may be able to live among the other group. The other group are the outsiders, those that are ungodly, those that are unbelieving, those that are wayward, and those that are alien to God. Peter wants the inside group to be pure, to do what's right, to be faithful, to endure. He wants them to behave in such a way that they become a blessing to the other group, the outside group. If a wife is within the inside group as a believer and her husband is only in the outside group, let her live in such a way in the marriage that she will be one, that he will be one by her testimony and by her godly life. If a slave is in the inside group and yet he serves a master that's in the outside group, let that slave on the inside serve and live in such a way that he bears witness and he blesses and he honors his master who is still on the outside group. And that's the way Peter thinks. And that's really the way we ought to think. And the more we sort of recognize these two spheres of population, the more we can see the radical difference. The inside group just has a totally different mindset, a different worldview, a different way of relating to one another, a different way of seeing all of life. And it's strangely, but gloriously 
distinct from the outside group. Now, in this passage, Peter's going to exhort us. In fact, in the first verse there, he has, in verse 8, he has five things that he will describe the inside group. And these are adjectives, but they have the force of an imperative in the language. In fact, we can put the word be or do in front of each one of them, and it will tell us something we ought to be doing, an imperative. And he lists them. And this list that he gives, as well as some of this passage entirely, is a condensation, kind of a boiling down of what you will find in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. In 12 verses, Paul talks about the same thing that Peter talks about here in a couple of verses. So for your homework assignment, read those verses in chapter 12 of Romans. Remember, Paul starts Romans by saying, by the mercies of God, I beseech you that you make yourself a living sacrifice. That means that your life is perpetual worship. And you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You may prove it. You may work it out. You may establish it in your own life. You will understand what the psalmist calls desiring to love life and to see good days. You'll be living the abundant Christian life. But look at these five things rather briefly. He says, unity of mind, or might be translated, be like-minded. This is imperative for the inside group to have a like-mindedness, but it is a like-mindedness that has a focus, and the focus is Christ. Peter, many times in this epistle, uses Christ as the example. Christ is the type. Christ is the one, the way that Paul explains it, is the one who has to be mimicked or imitated. And this focus is to be on Christ. This unity of mind is just to not have the same opinion about everything, but to have our minds focused on the same person with respect to everything. It is a consensus around Christ that he is urging us to. In the second place, he says to, be, to have sympathy or to be sympathetic. Be compassionate. Literally, the word means to suffer along with. That's what the inside group is to do. We are to bear one another's burdens, forgive one another. We are to love one another. We are to be in a relationship to one another, brothers and sisters, where we suffer. And suffering calls for tolerance and understanding. And I suggest we have to work at that. I suggest that does not come easy 
to the flesh, easy to the natural man. But instead, it is something that we have to work at as a church, as a body, as a fellowship group, to be compassionate toward one another. In the third place, he says, brotherly love or be loving of the brothers. And of course, always implied in these kind of admonitions is the sisters as well, the fellowship group, the men and the women, the boys and the girls. This is to come to one another's mutual defense. We are all, each one, from time to time being attacked. Let it, A, not be someone in the fellowship attacking us or you attacking them, but then also move to their aid and move to their defense. This is the kind of mutual love and protection. It has to do with assisting one another in life, giving each other the spiritual and the moral and the emotional strength to live and to do things that God has called us to do. This living right or doing right or doing that which is right is, is large in the mind of Peter all the way through. In fact, in the Psalm, we'll look at it in just a moment. It's, he's concerned about those that do right, the righteous. And that is our imperative. It is incumbent upon us to do that for one another. Brotherly love has to do with a cooperation, a working together. Not just in getting along, but in getting things done. We have a mission in the Christian life. We have things that God has called us to do on earth. And obviously, affection. Good, wholesome, reviving, strengthening, enlivening, and enriching affection. Where you just come and be in the group and you just sort of know they like you. And you like them. And you're comfortable. You're comfortable with the sameness and you're comfortable with differences. Because you know you've got the same mind. You're of the same heart. You have a unity of mind. Then in the next uh, fourth place, he says, be tender hearted. Tender hearted. Literally, it's the word good bowels. <laughs> Every one of these, by the way, is some kind of compound word in the Greek that sort of gives us a real good clear picture of the adjective and then there's a description of the adjective. So there's an adjective modifying an adjective kind of a, of a construction. Be of good bowels. I shall refrain from saying anything else except to say, you know in, in biblical psychology that the, the innards, the viscera is often the seat of affection. It's the place where we have our feelings, where we feel it. 
course, science tells us something about ganglia, nerve centers, and something about various chemicals like adrenaline and all that sort of thing. We can learn about it if we want to in the, in the mundane, but, but it is a, a, a viscera that is tuned to the other person. You feel good about them. You feel good with them. You help them feel good about themselves. You work on that. I think if there was more of this going on, we might put a few psychiatrists out of business, or at least we'd slow their business down a little bit. And we might reduce this heavy burden that's becoming kind of secularized called Christian counseling, Christian psychology. I think if we would just grasp a few simple biblical principles, we would do a lot for each other that is missing and that so many of us are seeking in other places. So many things that are wrong with society at large are traceable to these things that are missing in people's lives. Let's let it not be missing in the church. In our congregation and in our church and among believers worldwide, let's have these things that describe us. And then finally, he says, be humble-minded or be lowly. That's what he's been talking about now for several verses. Being humble-minded, having a mindset of subordination, being willing to come under the authority and under the order of that which is above you in the social strata. Humility was a rare virtue in the ancient world. In fact, it was considered a weakness. That's why a lot is made of Christ as our example is how he was humble and he was lowly and he was meek. And why so much of Jesus' teaching had to do with, with honoring others and preferring others and not asserting ourselves and asserting our rights. And why as he moves into this next section, He's talking about our behavior in reaction to the way we're treated. And remember the very first little phrase he uses in this text is all of you, all of you. This is inclusive for the Christian. This is, belongs to all of us, each and every one of us are under these injunctions. The next thing that Peter talks about not only applies to the church and those in it, obviously, and if we have these um, features that we mentioned just now, the unity, the sympathy, the brotherly love, the tenderheartedness, the humble-mindedness, then we will not be doing the things that he's going to speak of next. And in summary, it goes kind of like this. You know how the people outside treat each other. And they've amped that up in treating us. They despise us. They revile us. They speak evil against us. They do evil against us. That's part of our, our suffering is that we are put upon, we are persecuted, we are abused, 
And I'll tell you what's even the most damaging, I think, in our culture is we are ignored. We are set aside. We're put over in a category of the insignificant as Christians. We're marginalized, as they say these days. When these things happen, this is how we are to respond. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. And he gives us two reasons why we are to bless and not curse. Blessing means to eulogize, to speak well of. It also means to bestow honor upon, and it even means to bestow material things upon. So we are blessing others. First, we're called to it. <laughs> we're called to it. And connected to it, the second reason is we do it so that we might be a part of that inheritance that is coming to us. And that inheritance is to be a blessing. This is a vague reference to that glorious covenant that God made with Abraham that brought to the world true faithfulness where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness and he was known as a friend of God. And God said to Abraham at one point, I will be your exceeding great reward. And in making the covenant, God said to Abraham, I will bless you, but then I will through you be a blessing to all the nations. I'm gonna make you a great nation. And that great nation is the church. It's the people of God. It's those who are by faith united in Christ, that believing and living and acting obedient faith of Abraham. And it's that blessing that's been poured into the small group so that we could just be completely devoted to God and different then we will bless others. We won't have to try to bless them. We will. We'll be the salt of the earth. We'll be the light that's set on the hill. We'll be the example of true human living. One of the problems with ungodly living, whether it's immoral lifestyle or whether it's living a life of treachery and a life of thievery, or a life that's self-centered, a life of debauchery, a life of, uh, of, of immorality, whatever is going on in an unbelieving heart and in an unbelieving society and culture, whatever is going on out there is in need, desperate need of what's going on in here, in the small group. They're in desperate need of brotherly love, compassion, tender-heartedness. And so that's how we bless. We've been called to it. And it's been bestowed upon us by grace. We've been received the blessing. Now there's an example of someone who lived his life like this. Not in every detail, of course, but who had some very mountain peak experiences 
of being this kind of person. You remember who it was? It was King David. King David had a couple of occasions in his life. The long story of King David you'll find in beginning in first, but going into second Samuel and the story there of the, the life and, and reign of King David. King David had on one occasion an opportunity to kill Saul. Saul, who had been a wonderful person in his early years, had turned awful sour and an evil spirit had come upon him and he had become very much a treacherous person. And David, who had served Saul from his teenage years and had ministered to Saul and had been a personal friend of Saul and a close intimate friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. David, who was in that, had now fallen upon treacherous times as Saul pursued him and tried to kill him. And on one occasion, David was able to be in a cave hiding from Saul when Saul came into the cave. He could have killed him right there. David could have slaughtered him right there. And if you read about David's life during those days, he was not averse to bloodshed. He wasn't squeamish at the thought of killing someone. But instead, he just cut off a portion of Saul's garment and stealthily hid it away. And when Saul left the cave, David called out and showed him, I had a piece of your coat. I could have had a piece of your throat. When he was reviled, when he was persecuted, when he was threatened, when he was pursued, when he was in danger of his life, he could have eliminated the very threat with a, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But he didn't. He didn't touch the Lord's anointed. And he didn't render evil for evil. And he didn't pay back. And he remembered what the Lord said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And just for good measure, the Lord gave him another opportunity. A little later on, Saul in his armed men were camped and they were sleeping. They were exhausted. And David slipped into the camp. And one more time, even his armor bearer said, let me take a spear and pin him to the ground right where he lays. David said, no, touch not God's anointed. Instead, David just took Saul's water, his canteen and his weapon and left. And you know, we had Saul do it on both occasions. If you'll read the, the, the narrative back there in 2 Samuel, Saul blessed David. He said, you're a better man than I am. You've treated me right. You've proven your loyalty. God bless you for what you've done. May God forgive me for what I've done. Come back home and be in the place where you always were. Of course, David didn't take him up on that good offer, but Nevertheless, it showed how that David living right, doing what was right, forgiving and, and, and not being vengeful and trusting God had his influence upon this very, very troubled king. You know what David did during those days? He wrote a psalm. And you know what psalm it is? It's the one that uh, Peter quotes here. It's Psalm 34. Let's just look at it for a second the way that Peter looks at it. 
He said, and whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. David knows that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of the heart come the issues of life and through the mouth and through the tongue is the expression. People don't live much differently than they talk. If their mouth is full of bitterness and cursing, as Paul describes in Romans 1, then they have a sinful life. If their mouth is full of lying and deceit, they have a sinful lifestyle and sinful actions. Actions arise from the heart as the tongue and the lips express. Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Seeking peace is looking for the opportunity. Pursuing peace is to move into it and make it happen and to not give up on it. Well, what would happen in our politics if we pursued peace and not hostility and not enmity and not an adversarial relationship in everything? What would happen in our homes? What would happen in our church if our number one goal was peace? How can we do this honorably and peaceably? And then he says in verse 12 of our text, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These um, anthropomorphic uh, terms here describe the Lord, his eyes, his ears, and his face. His eyes are on the righteous. The righteous in scripture are the upright, those that live right. It's not those that are morally perfect. Job was upright, but he was not sinless. Uprightness is the way that God wants us to live our lives in obedience to his commandments. His ears, God's ears are open to prayer. God is watching the righteous. He's listening. I like the way that the psalmist does on several occasions. He says, incline thine ear to me. Bend over and listen. And that's what the Lord does for us. He's ever ready to hear our prayers. And then it says that his face is against evil doers. The visage of God, the frown of God ever beholds those that are doing wrong. It is God's disposition, his fixed attitude. His face has got a, an expression to it. And it's an expression of determination and it's an expression of judgment. And it doesn't change. It's like that passage where it said, Jesus fixed his face to go to Jerusalem. Like a flint, he fixed his face like a flint. Well, that's the way God's face is fixed toward evildoers. Now, you know this Psalm quite well. And let me conclude by just reading just a handful of the verses that are sprinkled in there. It starts off, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Affliction 
will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And then here's my favorite verse. And by the way, this Psalm, Psalm 34 is in a Hebrew alphabet acrostic. It starts, you know, with Aleph, Beth, and goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet, 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 22, Ta, that's the last letter. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Can't you just hear Paul say, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ? Let me read it one more time, then I'm done. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Is your refuge in the Lord? It's pretty certain. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned.